This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My aim today is simple. I argue that for Thomas, those possessed of infused virtues can also possess acquired virtue. As I'll explain, such acquired virtues operate exclusively at the discretion and direction of infused virtue. And by infused virtue, the fruit of acquired virtue is itself offered up to God, remotely ordered to beatitude. Now, given Thomas's text, I confess that it is somewhat dismaying to me, at least, that this argument needs to be made. But thoughtful and deeply learned scholars such as Gene Porter, Bill Madison, and of course, Professor Angela Knobel, argue that Thomas holds that Christians cannot possess acquired virtues and that acquired virtue is incompatible with infused moral virtue. With nearly all of the interpretive tradition, I disagree. That is, alongside the interpretive tradition, I, I disagree with this other perspective. In my view, and, and that of, of many others, Christians can, and in many cases should, cultivate acquired virtue, both because of the beauty and goodness of the natural good in its own right, and in obedience to, and as an act of love for, the triune God. They ought to seek the common good partly in its own right, even as they also love it instrumentally, as more distantly ordered by charity to beatitude. This view is Augustinian and Thomistic, but more than that, it is scriptural. For Christians are commanded to seek the peace of the city, to honor and obey the emperor, to recognize that all political authority finally comes from God. Now, three key qualifications that I'll be assuming in my talk. On my view, strictly every Christian act should be directed to, to beatitude by charity. Those of the infused virtues are ordered thereto immediately and directly with no intermediate ends. Those of the acquired virtues are ordered remotely and distantly to beatitude, never acting alone, but only at the command of infused virtue. Second qualification, I take for granted the superiority and primacy of infused virtues their absolute importance and centrality to Christian life. Thirdly, I grant and think that there is a difference worth caring about between the acquired virtues of those who have charity and the acquired virtue, virtues of those who do not, and that this relates precisely to the healing of wounded nature that grace affects. We can talk more about that in, in the Q&A. Qualifications aside, I move in three basic steps. First, the grammar of habit and virtue specification. Secondly, the polity-specific character of virtues. And then finally, the case of courage. So the grammar of virtue specification. Acquired virtue and infused moral virtue are distinct species. That is the central claim of 1263.4. And my references are all to the Summa Theologiae, unless I say otherwise. So this claim also stems from Thomas's fundamental grammar of human action. Habits are specified by their acts. 
acts are specified by their objects, above all by their proximate ends. Thus, habits are specified by their proximate ends, namely the proximate ends of the acts to which those habits dispose. This is simply the sad contra of 1-2-54-2 and the central thrust of its corpus. This point rests as deeply in Thomas's vision as any, and it's essential to grasping the relationship between and distinction between acquired and infused moral virtues. Now, often we undertake one act for the sake of a more distant end. Call the most immediate end proximate, the more distant end remote. I bake a cake to celebrate Lou's birthday, to feed a refugee, to seduce an intern. Certainly, those, hopefully not, but this, this person does. Certainly, those more remote ends can render my cake baking good or evil. But the more immediate end, the proximate end of cake production, constitutes this as an act of cake baking. Now, thanks to the place the more remote ends have in my will, there may also be an act or species of friendship, almsgiving, or adultery. But this is something that such remote ends add. There's an act of cake baking due to the proximate end, and then another species. Proximate ends never fail to specify action. If they did, we'd be unable to distinguish different acts ordered to a single remote end. Thus, farming to give alms and selling heroin to do so would both be species of almsgiving due to their common remote end. Moreover, a Christian's pursuit of beatitude as final end would entail that everything done for that remote end would be exclusively and nothing but an act of charity. Now, to be sure, remote ends matter. They can render acts evil and add species, but they can never subtract a species or an action. They cannot erase an act or habit ordered to some proximate end. All this is particularly obvious when the proximate end is sought not purely as means to a remote end, but in any part for its own sake. And this is precisely the kind of case that concerns us throughout, the sort relevant for thinking about the acquired infused moral virtue relation. Habits conduce to a single formally specified act. If there's another act or remote end in the picture, we're no longer dealing with the same habit. That is, if it's being ordered to directly. Finally, Thomas holds that a higher virtue can use a subordinate virtue. The higher virtue both directs the, that subordinate virtue to act and, in its own proper act, orders that virtue and its particular act to some other higher end. That end is the higher virtue's own proximate end, and so this commanding, this act of commanding and of referring, just are the higher virtue's proper elicited act. Yet, that end, the end of the higher virtue, is extrinsic and remote for the lower virtue. Having its act commanded and then referred does nothing to change the lower virtue's specification or act. Rather, it's used by the higher virtue, used as the very thing it is. Consider an example. A woman plays soccer to win an Olympic medal for her nations. Common good. An act of soccer playing and an act of justice or piety, with justice commanding here and directing her, her act of soccer playing. If we want a preview of what's to come, 
let's say this woman is also a Christian and one trained by the Jesuits over at Georgetown. Bless her heart. All she does, she does ad maiorum de glorium. All she does, she does to the greater glory of God. Thus, she seeks not only to serve the common good, an act of acquired justice, but even more so to glorify the triune God, an act of infused justice and charity. By acquired justice, she seeks her nation's good, her will and passions ordered accordingly by right reason. But there is also an act of infused justice and charity, which commanded the elicited operation of acquired justice and then relates and orders that act immediately to beatitude. We'll have more to say about this, but notice that rather than seeming a puzzle or worse, impossible, this seems not only logically possible, but empirically observable in the lives of such Olympians as Eric Little, if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Thomas explains, quote, nothing prevents what is the proper elicited act of one virtue from being attributed to another virtue as commanding it and ordering it to its own end. He describes this as one virtue mediating another. Virtues can have two acts, these higher virtues, their ordinary act and an act of commanding and referring to their own end, the operation of a lower virtue. Thus, acquired religion has its own proper and immediate operation of adoring God as natural end, but another or second act by which it commands other virtues, ordering, ordering them to the worship of God. Commanded by the higher virtue, the subordinate virtue performs its ordinary operation, visiting orphans and widows in distress, say, quote, which is an elicited act of the virtue of mercy. The higher virtue of religion refers these acts to its own end, the, or, the, the worship of God. And this is how any number across Thomas's text, how any number of higher virtues relate to virtues somehow subordinate to them. This is a structural feature of the way Thomas imagines the functioning of virtues in relation to one another, and it is exactly how he describes relations between infused and, inquire, and acquired virtues in his primary treatment of their relation in De Virtutibus 1.10 at 4. The act of acquired virtue, he explains, quote, is not able to be meritorious except by the mediation of infused virtue. For virtue ordered to a lower end cannot generate an act ordered to a higher end except by means of a higher virtue. In 12634, where Thomas considers why acquired and infused moral virtues are distinct species, he explains that we have two species of virtue because we have two proximate ends, one specified by right reason, the other by charity. And it's the prerogative of the higher to command the lower to perform its proper act. Now, a virtue's proximate end is a function of two things, its matter and its rule. The matter is the power-specific domain that concerns a virtue. For courage, this is the good in matters of fear and daring. For temperance, the good in matters of sensible pleasure, and so on. This matter distinguishes temperance of any sort from courage of any sort. And we could go on through the rest of the virtues. Their matter is also what different species of the same cardinal virtue share. So infused and acquired courage both concern the good in matters of fear and daring. In contrast, it is a virtue's rule in distinction from its matter 
the good delineated by that rule that distinguishes one species of virtue from another. For acquired virtues, the good according to right reason, for infused, the good according to new law. As Thomas puts it with great simplicity and clarity at one point, where the theological virtues relate us immediately to God, with God as their object and their rule and end, the infused moral virtues relate us to other things, passions, the the, the will, external operations in the case of justice, yet relate us to those things in immediate relation to God. That is, they relate us to those things in immediate view of beatitude. They apply the rule and proportion of new law directly to operation and action concerned with this world. So, acquired virtues disposed to action immediately in accord with right reason, infused moral virtues generate action dictated immediately by new law. To say that both are immediately concerned with this is to say that that exhausts their activity. They conduce to some act that exemplifies the application of their rule and their rule only. A virtue conduces to one formally specified act. Infused virtue can no more apply right reason to some matter than acquired virtue can apply new law. Now, the end for Thomas always determines the means. It determines what is directed thereto so that what is directed thereto is proportioned, rightly ordered to it. Proportion talk is rule talk and vice versa. Thus, again, in the paradigmatic treatment of the acquired infused distinction, Thomas stresses that acquired and infused temperance are distinct species in part precisely because of the distinct reasons for action at work in each. This is one, two, 63, four, add two. We'll put flesh on all this momentarily, but notice what follows from the formally distinct character of virtues and the actions they produce. Infused virtue cannot itself produce action or passion ruled by right reason and order to the common good. For infused virtue just is capacity and inclination for action and passion immediately and directly in accord with and ruled by charity. But infused virtue, in particular, infused charity, infused justice, and infused prudence, can command and direct subordinate habits and virtues so that these habits perform their own integral, distinctive operation immediately ordered to their own proximate end. Thus, Thomas, quote, every virtue, strictly speaking, directs its act to that virtue's proper end. That it should happen to be directed to a further end, either always or sometimes, does not belong to that virtue considered strictly, for it needs some higher virtue to direct it to that end. That's 58.6 add 4. 2258.6 add 4. All right, part two, polities and virtues. Throughout the Summa, the disputed questions on virtues and Thomas's commentaries on the Nicomachean ethics and politics, he repeatedly holds that one person can have distinct species of acquired cardinal virtues that are distinct because they correspond to the distinct ends of different sorts of polities. So a set of acquired virtues proper to a monarchy, to an aristocracy, or to what he couldn't imagine, a republic like our own. Moreover, he says, 
the virtues proper to the ruler and to the ruled can be specifically distinct. And in some cases, the virtues proper to a human being as such and the virtues of a citizen can be distinct. And one person, he's clear, can possess any of these and all of these, despite the fact that each of these constitutes distinct forms residing in whatever it is they subject, and, and despite the fact that they involve different proportions and orderings of the wills and passions, and they do so precisely because the ends which determine those, those rules, those proportions, are themselves distinct. All right, so an example. Imagine a polity consisting of a commonwealth of distinct but confederated cities. These cities each have distinctive forms of governance, and some differ in their, in their kind of governance from that which pertains to the commonwealth as a whole. Nora is a citizen of both her city and the commonwealth, with duties and roles distinctive to each. In her capacity as a member of the city, she orders her activity immediately and directly to its good. Yet, she is also always at the same time a member of the commonwealth, and thus she has a duty always to seek the commonwealth's good and to order her actions to it. Sometimes, such as when she votes for the executive of the commonwealth, she orders her actions immediately and directly to the good of the commonwealth with no intervening ends, all right? But often, she has duties and responsibilities that pertain immediately to the good of the city, getting the streetlights fixed, for goodness sake. And she orders and proportions her actions and passions immediately to that good with its distinction, distinctive proportionality and rule. Yet even then, even when she's trying to get those street lights fixed, she still intends the good of the commonwealth too, over and above that as a distant and remote end. Her commonwealth-specific virtues have two characteristic operations. One, such as in the case of voting for the, for the executive of the commonwealth that's direct and immediate, ordered to the good of the commonwealth directly. Another, commanding her city-specific actions and city-specific virtues and ordering them remotely to the good of the commonwealth. Now, Nora's ultimate and most lasting political allegiance and love is to the commonwealth rather than to the city. In a vital sense, she loves and serves her city for its sake, for the sake of the commonwealth. But at the same time, her relation to the city is not only instrumental, for she also and rightly loves it for its own sake and proportions her actions according to its good, for this is a way of showing love and justice to her fellow members of the city. Now, it's not incidental that in Thomas's primary treatments of the distinction between acquired and infused virtue, especially 1, 2, 63, 4, he draws on just this vision and point, quote, citizens have diverse virtues according as they are well-directed to diverse forms of government. But, and this is key, it's not merely the case that Thomas takes the phenomenon of polity-differentiated virtues to illustrate the kind of distinction and relation that obtains between acquired and infused moral virtues. No, he does more than that. 
Here in the very locus classicus of the distinction, he uses polity language to describe the virtues themselves. That is, he characterizes acquired and infused moral virtues precisely as being virtues of different polities. Notice what he says, citing Ephesians 2. Infused moral virtues are just those virtues whereby men behave well, quote, in respect of their being fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. In contrast, acquired virtues are those whereby a man behaves well in respect of human affairs. Notice his elucidation of of acquired and infused virtues precisely as virtues of different polities. We have here two cities, and Thomas makes this clear in his Ephesians commentary that the church is both city and family, both civil and domestic. And we have corresponding to each of these polities, heavenly and earthly, distinct species of virtue. Each suits a person to behave and do well in relationship to the good of these cities. Each corresponds to a certain sort of relation and formality. Infused virtue relates one's infused virtue relates one to others as possible or actual brothers and sisters in Christ. And it equips one to see and relate to them and to the world as immediately and directly ordered to beatitude. In contrast, acquired virtues relate us to one another's one another as citizens and neighbors in an earthly polity. And, and just very quickly in passing, in Father Sherwin's talk yesterday, he mentioned Thomas's ambivalence about Augustine's distinction in City of God 19. What, what you find is at times, Thomas, as Augustine does, characterizes the city of Babylon as precisely the site of idolatry, that wherein the human exalts himself to the contempt of God. But at other times, he treats the city of Babylon as a a paradigm of this worldly, natural, political good. So So he has both in there. Now, while the Christian's most fundamental identity and way of being in the world is always and necessarily as members of the household of God, that is not their only identity or way of relating to the world and one another, even as it englobes and encircles every other identity, all right? We are also, in this life, members of political communities bearing relationships of citizenship to our neighbors. Let's make this all more concrete. Consider the deeply godly man who becomes U.S. president. This is very easy to imagine, I know, all right? We we don't even have to imagine it, right? Okay, so in addition to being robustly possessed with infused virtues, this guy also possesses acquired virtues, cardinal virtues ruled by right reason, immediately ordered to the good of this polity. To rule this polity well, one officially neutral between diverse faiths and roughly committed to rights and laws in accord with natural law, and let's just stipulate that this imagined polity is that, for him to do this and rule it well, it will not do for him to act, legislate, and rule in unmediated accord with charity, with direct ordering to beatitude, right? To respond to the terrorist attack, say, by, by turning the other cheek. Rather, he must take as proximate end, 
the common good and act in direct accord with right reason. And this is exactly what Thomas says. To rule well, he must possess possess acquired legal virtue as, quote, mastercraft. It is, Thomas says, quote, in the sovereign principally and by way of a mastercraft. That's 2258.6. He must love the common good for its own sake, even as he also regards it as penultimate, fragile, fleeting, subordinate to and instrumental for the true final good. At no point does he fail to love and act for beatitude as his final end. Thus he heeds Jeremiah's command to seek the peace of the city, which requires loving and taking the common good as proximate end and ordering his actions by right reason. Now, who should wish to say that this man does poorly or unfaithfully in this? Not Thomas, for in his commentary on Romans 13, he says that such a person is due special honor, or not due necessarily, will be given special honor and praise by God for their faithfulness in ruling the earthly city well. This man, this, this, this president or, or this woman, he hears this call to love the city well with the ears of faith and as a command from the triune God to whom he is united by charity. Through a work of infused prudence, he recognizes that to act in immediate obedience to God and order his actions in immediate view of beatitude requires him to undertake an act that is for its own part immediately ordered to the common good. But the work of infused virtue does not end with the discerning that such an act is called for, nor the commanding that such an act be taken. If that trajectory, the discerning and the commanding, traces the path of love downward into this world, as we're impelled by charity to tend to the goods of this world in their own right and for their own sake, there's another path and trajectory of inf- that infused virtue describes as well. It is the path upward, the return, the reunion, for having commanded and then undertaken an action immediately ordered to and ruled by the common good, he then offers this action up in its full integrity and self-same identity to the triune God by charity. By charity, this virtuous natural conduct becomes a sweet and fragrant offering to God. There is reason to think that failing to cultivate acquired virtue or at least to do acts associated with it, is sinful, at least for those who are not separated from the world by vocation. I think this is Thomas's view, but I think it is even clearer that at the very least, Christians cannot as fully bless and love their neighbor without seeking the common good. It is far from clear that it would make Christians a blessing in the world if they always immediately and exclusively ordered each of their actions directly to the to beatitude. And in the examples Father Sherwin gave yesterday, I think bore, bore that point out well. Acquired virtues, Thomas says, are directly ordered to and necessary for the flourishing and well-being of the city. And I have a number of, of passages there that I won't I won't read through right now. But Thomas basically basically says that failing to attend to such things of the world is itself wicked when, when necessity demands it, as it ever so often does for those of us who are in the world. As Thomas has it, 
there are some goods that God created such that they are only rightly loved, if at least partly loved for their own sake. And, and to fail to see and seek these goods is an act of disobedience and ingratitude. Thomas goes further than this. Acquired virtues are ordered to the good in human affairs and, quote, to neglect human affairs when necessity forbids is wicked. Tending to see, tending to and seeking the good of the earthly city is something to which Thomas, following scripture, holds Christians or at least lay Christians to be called. This should come as no surprise. Briefly, consider two examples. In Jeremiah 29, 6 through 7, the prophet commands the exiles in Babylon to build houses, take wives, and seek the peace, quarete pacum, of the city in which they are in exile. These were things, Thomas says, that the exiles were neglecting precisely because they had an immediate view their return, their ultimate more distant end of renewing the covenant and rebuilding the temple. So mindful and desirous were they for God to fulfill his promise to bring them back that they were failing to live faithfully in exile, failing to see that they bore responsibility to seek the peace and good of the city, and that on an earthly level, their own peace was bound up with that. In elucidating the passage, Thomas chooses a word nowhere found in the biblical text itself, the relevant passage, to describe what the exiles are to do, the verb intendo, intendere. They are called to intend the peace of Babylon, to order their wills to seek the good and peace of that city. This is precisely the work of acquired virtue. Obviously, they are not to imagine Babylon their home. How could they? There on the banks of the river of Babylon, they wept. They're to continue to worship and desire union with God in the temple, to seek that as their final end. But they are called by God himself as well to intend the good and peace of the earthly city, even as one as broken and faithless as Babylon. Now notice that in 1-2-109.2, when Thomas considers the question of whether man can do any good without grace, he notes that post-lapsarian humans are at least able to do some of the good in accord with their nature. Jacob brought this up yesterday. They can build dwellings, build dwellings, plant gardens, and the like. And, and later, in the two articles after that, he identifies that list of activities with the natural human good. You can see on the handout, if you compare the Latin description in, in the Jeremiah commentary to these two passages, they're nearly identical. These lists are synecdoche for the natural human good. I think it's quite clear. The command in Jeremiah is for God's pilgrim people to intend and seek the natural human good, even as they long for and seek their true and final home in him. Secondly, to take a second scriptural example, in, in, in elucidating Christ's command to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, in commenting on Matthew 22, Thomas cites Baruch and alludes to Jeremiah, quote, for even saintly men raised above this world, because nevertheless they live in the world with others, must seek the peace of Babylon. Even the holiest of men, and he uses a phrase here that he primarily uses to refer to apostles and Old Testament saints, those who are possessed of theological and robust infused virtues, even they are, as a matter of justice, of rendering what's due and obedience to Christ, commanded to seek the peace of the city. 
Notably, seeking this peace is something undertaken with others, with those who are not sancti viri, those who are not the holiest of men or holy men. It's not a matter of ordering their action immediately and directly with be, to beatitude with new law as immediate rule of conduct, but rather of making the peace of the city a proximate end of action and cultivating acquired virtues. Part three, the case of courage. And we, and we turn here for further evidence and insight on the importance of acquired virtues in Christian life. In Thomas's treatment of courage, we find a pattern that in the Summa is both global and particular. This pattern is one in which, without remark, Thomas consistently places what are unmistakably acquired virtues cheek by jowl alongside what are unmistakably infused virtues. And he does so without fanfare, comment, or remark. Alongside the length, depth, and breadth of the Prima Secunda's focus on acquired virtue and habituation, this pattern of weaving these seamlessly together becomes almost impossible to account for in a summa for Christian preachers and pastors if Christians need not concern themselves with acquired virtues, let alone if they cannot even have them. Consideration of acquired virtue, virtue specified by right reason, is threaded seamlessly through and through. What are these doing here if they have no place in or are impossible for the Christian life? let alone if their cultivation and use amount to idolatry or something close to that. If Thomas believes acquired virtue irrelevant to Christian life, their inclusion and their inclusion in this manner would seem to be precisely the very, quote, multiplication of useless questions he expressly sets out in the Summa to avoid. When Thomas turns to courage, he treats acquired and infused courage together, sometimes speaking of courage generally and inclusively, sometimes exclusively of infused courage, sometimes exclusively of acquired. And it's clear that he thinks that acquired courage can be exercised by the faithful. And this is especially clear throughout question 40 of 2.2. Nearly always, there's at least one passage where he explicitly distinguishes and contrasts acquired and, and, and infused courage often in passing, often with the distinction being taken for granted and forming a backdrop against which he's tackling some other matter. All of this is particularly on display in 2.2.124.2, which is a, a linchpin for this part of the account. Courage, he says, is the moral habit whereby one endures fear and deadly danger in pursuit of some truly worthy good. Quote, just as civic courage strengthens a man's soul and human justice for the preservation of which he endures dangers of death, in the same way, infused courage strengthens a man's soul and the good of divine justice, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The parallel is absolute, precise, and extremely illuminating. We have here two species of courage, acquired or human, and gratuitous or infused. What makes them both species of courage is that they are habits subjected or present in a person's irascible passion, and to the extent such passion can be obedient to knowledge and choice, they enable a person to endure suffering and danger steadfastly 
with the right amount of fear and daring in view of some authentic and presently choice-worthy good. What makes them different species, distinct forms and habits, differently disposing and shaping irascible passion, are the different ends and goods they implicate. One concerns human justice, the common good. The other, divine justice, beatitude. This is a difference that makes a difference. For the characteristic and chief act of acquired courage is fighting and indeed killing on the battlefield in defense and pursuit of a just cause and with right attention, right intention, authority, and due means. In contrast, the characteristic act of infused courage is martyrdom, choosing not to fight or resist and instead turning one's cheek and willingly giving one's life in defense of and witness to the truth of the gospel and the goodness and love of Jesus Christ. Killing and dying. We need to bring this distinction more fully in view. First, consider the Christian martyr, whoever it is, who holds the highest plate in your place in your heart and your esteem. Stephen, looking heavenward in joy as stones crush him. Peter, withstanding the brutality of Roman Imperium as he's crucified upside down. The countless martyrs of Japan. Dorothy Kozel, tortured and killed in El Salvador. All these, for a good transcending human reason and unseen by human eyes, by infused courage, withstood horrendous evil and fidelity to Christ. The dangers of death did not dissuade them from choosing and holding fast to the way of the cross. Now consider a paradigm of acquired courage, which I adapt from the Medal of Honor citation for Sergeant Lucian Adams. In October 1944, Adams found himself in thick woods in northeast France, charged with opening a vital Allied supply line. His company had progressed less than 10 yards while losing three killed and six wounded. Adams charged forward, dodging from tree to tree, firing a machine gun from his hip. Despite intense enemy machine gun fire, which they directed at him, and grenades which struck the trees above his head, showering him with broken twigs and branches, Adams nonetheless made his way to the closest machine gun nest and killed the gunner with a grenade. An enemy soldier then threw hand grenades at him from yards away, yet he was able to shoot that enemy. Charging then into a shower of enemy fire, he killed another machine gunner at 15 yards and forced the surrender of two others. When the, when the entire German group then concentrated the full force of its automatic weapon fire on him, he pressed forward and killed five more of the enemy. Finally, when the third German machine gun nest opened on him at 20 yards, he killed that gunner as well, single-handedly destroying three enemy machine gun nests and vanquishing a special forces unit. He broke open this vital Allied supply line. By acquired courage, he endured dangers of death to fight for the common good in a just war against the horrors of Nazism. Recall what it means for these to be distinct species of courage. A virtue that habituates a passion is a distinct form, and a single power may bear more than one habit, provided they not oppose one another. Moral virtue embodies a particular conformity to some good in accord with reason, or, in the case of beatitude, a good surpassing reason. It is conformity, participation in, 
and service to the good that constitutes a habit of will or passion as virtue. When the end in view is that of the commonwealth, the will is habituated by acquired justice to intend that end so that in each act one desires and delivers the right that is due and contributes to the good of the city. That end becomes the formality through which he desires, wills, and relates to other people and to given pieces of conduct. Now, I can maybe come back in Q&A to something about the work of prudence in all of this. But notice the way some end delineates and gives virtues its species and is thus imbricated, impressed, and participated all the way through that distinctive species and set of virtues. One is proportioned and inclined to that determinate end, that good. This is elemental for Thomas and an application of the basic principle that a given end lays down rules for its pursuit. Virtues like courage function to ensure one feels the right degree of passion, neither too much fear nor too little. One's decision about what to do isn't corrupted by terror or daring. More than this, in doing the courageous act, one does so with passion of the right sort and degree. For acting well as a human involves acting with due feeling. Both of these contributions of moral virtue are essential, prophylactic and adverbial, negative and positive. But we say too little if we stop here. While courage ensures the mean, it does so exclusively in relation to and in view of some sort of formally determinate action and end. The right sort and amount of passion to feel is necessarily a function of the action, good, and end in question. On one level, this is obvious. Think about it. The right degree of fear and daring to feel in confronting possible death on the battlefield would be the wrong degree to feel in facing a job interview, a blind date, a grumpy parishioner, or a rude metro rider. Although the last, <laughs> maybe the most intense. Okay, <laughs> so courage helps ensure good action and right feeling in each. But this regards only the material dimension of action, and it treats courage simply as relating us well insofar as passion is concerned with action considered merely in material terms. Recall, though, action is constituted and specified not only by the material, battle, job, date, metro ride, but by the formal object. For human action always and necessarily implicates our reason and our reason for acting. When we regard love and seek something as good, we regard it as good in some way and for some reason. To be rightly proportioned is exactly to be conducive and rightly related to the very end in question. But it is in relation to the proximate end of a piece of conduct that some degree, order, and movement of fear and daring is right. And we cannot talk about proportionality and the mean courage effects without having in view and relating it to the particular action in question, the piece of conduct before us. But for Thomas, to talk about a piece of conduct or end is necessarily to talk about reasons and reasons for acting. Courage is the way in which a particular, formally distinct, formally articulated rule and, God, rule and good 
is embodied and participated in our passion. You cannot disentangle rule, reason, and proportionality. They come packaged together. Right feeling is a function of the end in question, and the end in question is a function of reason and reasons. And remember, in 63.4, Thomas himself says that acquired and infused prudence are distinguished in part precisely because they operate for and according to different reasons. This is not to suggest that, that the appetitive passions are themselves rational, but they do participate right reason. We can talk about that, that more. So return to our passage, 2-2-124-2, and, and to Thomas's distinction between acquired and, and infused courage. The difference between these two types of courage, these two species, goes deeper then there are already very different chief acts, killing and braving death and war on the one hand and enduring martyrdom on the other. And that's not to downplay the very real fact that, that both of these involve endurance, right? That's what makes them both acts of courage. So, but, but these acts, despite that, are, are radically different. We cannot really even understand these acts without bringing in view their distinct ends. The one, the fighting the war, seeks and conforms to human justice. The other seeks and conforms to beatitude. And the passions are differently ordered to each in correspondence to the distinct ends of human and divine goods. The sort of fear and daring necessary to run through the woods, dodging enemy fire with a machine gun at your hip, is hardly the same sort of fear and daring involved in refusing to recant one's faith under torture and waiting for death at the martyr's hand. Do we have any reason to think that the person possessed of the one sort of courage would, by that very courage, acquit himself well doing the chief act associated with the other sort? Right. So Mother Teresa undoubtedly possessed of infused courage. Does that have it? equip her to, to do what Sergeant Adams did, or vice versa? Certainly not. I imagine everyone would agree that the maximally courageous soldier would not, in virtue of a civic courage, be equipped to withstand Christian martyrdom. But I hope equally, if we are honest and put aside prior allegiances, theoretical to this or that view of acquired and infused virtue, if we imagine we would not imagine that the person equipped to withstand Christian martyrdom to turn her cheek again and again and again when she could strike back, when she was free to resist, being attacked precisely for that faith, would by that selfsame habit be ready and able to perform deadly feats of courage on the battlefield? Why would we ever expect that? Many paradigmatic cases of civic courage involve one soldier giving his life for another or for many others. When a truly courageous soldier does this in the context of a just war, what exactly is happening according to Thomas? He already said that this soldier is acting for, quote, human justice. And throughout 2240 in his treatment of war, in his treatment of war, the common civic good is the end sought in just war. And the common good is, quote, the proper and direct object of acquired fortitude. The courageous soldier acts for the true common good of the city, 
His will inclined by legal justice to love that good, he orders and proportions his actions to it, and vitally, his habit of courage proportions his fear and daring accordingly. He aims to defeat the enemy and to do so by killing the enemy, and he's willing to give his life in this cause. When he dives on a grenade or throws himself into enemy fire to save his fellow soldiers, he acts for the common good. Importantly, in some cases, the self-sacrifice is also an act of killing. Holding a malfunctioning grenade, he breaks into an enemy pillbox. Both in the decision, which occurs in the blink of an eye, and in the passions he has, courage operates. First, helping ensure that the decision itself is neither brash nor cowardly, and then ensuring that his very action is done with the proper sort and degree of passion. When he gives his life for his fellow soldiers, he relates to these soldiers in a particular way. He loves and cares for them as fellow soldiers and citizens. This is not to say that he doesn't love and care for them as fellow bearers of God's image, or as friends, or as husbands with wives and children, or whatever. He may relate to you and see them in that way, but it's not in virtue or in view of that which he acts. In and through civic virtue, he relates to them as fellow soldiers and citizens, and his act of sacrifice for them is an act of sacrifice for them in that capacity. He is dying for citizen soldiers and doing so for the sake of the objective at hand and more distantly, the objective of winning the war and advancing the common good. This is no mere speculation. In countless cases of real civic courage, the courageous lay down their life for people they don't even know who have just joined them on the battlefield. Now, if our soldier is a Christian possessed of robustly developed and fused virtue, he also sees those of his fellow soldiers and even enemy soldiers who are likewise Christians as fellow members of the household of faith. But he does not act directly or against them in virtue of that, not at least if he's thought to be acting well or virtuously. This battle is about the common civic good of the nation. While for him that is remotely ordered to the true final end, it is not beatitude or charity that immediately and directly, unmediatingly un governs his action. His action rather is immediately ruled and formed by right reason. In virtue of his further ordering this and all his actions to beatitude, it receives an additional distinct species of charity. But that additional distinct and hierarchically superior species does not erase his actions as for and to the common good. If it did so, this would be a vitally and saliently different case, and one I'm not sure we would want to praise. If slaying a host of enemies, he said, I did so for Jesus, and to save you, soldier boy, my brother in Christ, we would see him as having acted in the wrong way, for the wrong reasons. Arguably, it would be idolatrous to imagine that his act of killing for the common good of some nation constituted an act itself immediately ordered to beatitude. As I said at the outset, a fundamental rule for thinking to mystically, and I'm, I'm wrapping up, a fundamental rule for thinking to mystically and indeed Christianly about our topic is holding that all a Christian does ought to be done from charity and for beatitude. So if we bring in view a soldier who is a Christian, there's no possibility 
of setting aside the true final end, nor have we seen is there a possibility that she should make his make beatitude his proximate and immediate end in a given battlefield action? And is someone prepared to contend that it is an act immediately ordered to beatitude and an immediate operation of infused courage to, to shoot down other people with the machine gun? To point to this person and to say, behold, the fruit of the gospel. I, I hope not. I, I doubt that anyone would hold that. Instead, through an exercise of infused prudence and charity, he recognized that he recognizes that acting well here and now means acting directly by acquired virtue for the common good in accord with right reason. He so acts, and by charity and the infused virtues, he refers this act remotely to beatitude. Now, and, and this is, gets to something that I think has been bubbling in the questions. What difference would it make for some soldier to be robustly possessed of infused virtue and not merely acquired, right? That's, that's where it kind of comes to a head. Consider as an example, two scenarios. Objective secured, a vicious, monstrous enemy soldier is near death. All reasonable efforts have been made to comfort and help him, but to no avail. The demands of natural and civic justice are fully satisfied he can make no just complaint. In fact, in violation of natural law and the laws of war, this very enemy soldier, just prior to being captured and wounded, had wantonly killed a number of one's fellows who had tried to surrender to him. Acting exclusively in accord with right reason would involve perhaps administering morphine to him, which would blunt his death. So much for acquired virtue. But it is also the case, let us say, that this enemy could be saved. The only way to do so is by a blood transfusion that will surely kill the one who offers it. The Christian soldier volunteers to do just this, and let us assume somehow that his own death would not violate or betray his duties to the common good and his fellow soldiers, and that he knows this. He sees this wicked man through the eyes of charity, Hateful monster that he is, he is nonetheless beloved by God. And so for Christ, he lays down his life for the very enemy whom moments ago, justly and for the sake of the common good, he sought to kill. This is the work of infused virtue. It is also just the sort of disposition Thomas commends to us in 40, Article 1, Add 2. Defending the justice of war for the common good, Thomas considers an objection that cites the Beatitudes and the call not to resist evil. He responds, such like precepts as this should always be born in readiness of mind so that we be ready to obey them and if necessary to refrain from resistance or self-defense. That is exactly what this soldier in that moment does. I have taken the case of courage because it most strikingly and vividly makes evident what is true of the relation between acquired and infused virtue simpliciter. In some cases, the best action here and now is one ordered to the common good and in immediate accord with right reason. Much that a soldier does on the battlefield is of this sort. That is, in immediate accord with right reason and directed to the common good. And I believe, and I think Thomas probably does as well, that on reflection, it turns out that at least for most lay people, 
much of their lives as citizens and neighbors are, are, are of the sort as well, demanding development of acquired virtue. Yet even so, all that they do, all that they ought to do, must additionally and always be ordered to beatitude as final end. It is that which drives them into this ordinariness. It is that love which calls us, in the words of Richard Wilbur, to the things of this world, to relate to and love these things in part for their own sake, and then to deliver these fruits of conduct by infused virtue to the triune God. It is worth considering in closing that the highest act of natural reason, of love and justice in accord with right reason, is to lay down one's life for one's friends. We can grasp by reason alone why someone would do this and why it could be praiseworthy and good. But in contrast, one of the highest acts of Christian love is to lay down one's life for the enemy, more particularly for the very one who seeks you harm in virtue of your faith. This is, after all, the way of the crucified Jesus, and it transcends what reason alone can grasp, beckoning us toward the one who died for us while yet enemies, something only intelligible in light of and enabled by the gift of Jesus Christ.